0: May it be. Well, good morning. It's wonderful to be out of this incredibly hurried week that we've just come from. Impact week, of course. If you're visiting with us, we just got through with a a week where we had I think over a hundred and twenty uh, volunteers uh, go to do twenty over twenty projects in our city. We did uh, camp, a, a soccer camp, and a VBS over in the hill, and all sorts of amazing uh, experiences and testimonies and. And just a wonderful time of being the family of God. And it's just always, in some ways, the great highlight of our our, our calendar year as a church. And so it's a, I don't know how you're feeling, but I kind of went home and just collapsed. Uh, I think, uh, Alan, I think you almost really collapsed, so we're we're glad you're here. But um, it, it was an incredible week, and it was a week filled with good works and with all kinds of toil, to be sure. I mean... How many of you weren't exhausted? Let's raise your hand if you were participating. Yep, I don't see a couple. You weren't exhausted or you were? Were exhausted. Okay, maybe I should have asked it that way. Um, yeah, it was an exhausting thing. Well, and it raises a question, were we good Christians this week? Now, I asked that question because one of the highlights for my week was just hanging out with our high school kids in our, in our theology camp. It was so wonderful to be here. Circled around, really wrestling with the faith. And I'm going to tell you to be encouraged. There was some real wrestling going on. There was real conversation and talking. It was such a, a highlight for me to just re-engage the journey to faith with these kids, and and it was great. But one, one, one particular uh, student uh, raised the question. I think it was on Tuesday. But what is a good Christian? And of course, it all it made us all feel a bit uncomfortable, uh, and himself as well. It's like well. God, I mean, can we really say what a good Christian is? What, I mean, and, and you start to unpack that a little bit, and it goes in a lot of different directions. Of course, on the one hand, what is a good Christian relative to our being forgiven of God, relative to our having assurance of our salvation, relative to our being able to, to go to heaven? And in that sense, we're going to say, well, no one's a good Christian, which is why we rely on the goodness of Christ, who became our substitute to be a good Christian in a way that he then does the works that we could not do. He satisfies the law that we could not satisfy. He he accomplishes the covenant contract that God made with humanity that we could not satisfy ourselves. And therefore, to be a good Christian unto what we call justification is by grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ. Don't make any mistake about it. But that really wasn't quite what the student was asking It's really, well, what does it mean to be a good Christian? And it's a good question. And today we are challenged, actually, with that question. In a way that was not planned, but as I reflected on the sermon, it just fits perfectly. So let me try to to get you into our passage. Because our passage will answer that question for you in a very definitive way. And it might be so definitive that it's going to cause you a bit of uneasiness. And I warn you. We're going to have a conversation after such a week as this. Were we good Christians? I mean, let me raise it this way. Can an enlightened church be lightless? That is, could we be orthodox without a powerful witness? Can a faithful church be faithless? That is, a church that works hard, dutifully doing the work of loving one another, etc. But could we be doing this without the power of faith? The power that leads to conversions and life transformations? Is it possible that that could be done? An enlightened church, not but lightless? A faithful church, but faithless? Or can even a loving church be loveless? That is a loving church without the passion for the gospel of Jesus Christ. What is this, this intrigue? You see, the point of our passage fits perfectly with those questions. I mean, he makes it very abundantly clear. Absolutely yes to every one of those questions. What the three questions expose is the possibility of a faithful, loving, dutiful church without power. Without a passion for a first love kind of purpose for its existence. If we're confused, that's where I want you to be right now. Because hopefully now you're eager to open up this text and see what God says to us. As he said once upon a time... To the church of Ephesus. Let us pray. And so, Father, we thank you for this week and the many beautiful and wonderful testimonies of good works and kindness and love and all of which we know are, are good things and are truly part of what we're to be. But, but, Father, we want to come now humble, not to glory in ourselves too much if perhaps we could lose sight of what this week and every week and every day of our life is really all about. So please come, Lord, and speak to us, into our hearts. Do so in spite of ourselves. Where we are hardened in our hearts, soften us. Where we are reluctant to hear for whatever past experiences, Lord, help us to have an eagerness to hear. We know this is a miracle we're praying for, an enlightened heart. Come, Lord Jesus, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I just want you to notice, um, first of all, how uh, John really frames this church of Ephesus. He he gives it a descriptor, which really sets us up for the question. For notice notice again in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, The words of him, and here it is, Who holds the seven stars in the right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Notice these scriptures. this idea of a lampstand, the church being compared to a lampstand. And notice this idea that this light is not just a, a light of discernment, if you will, but it's a light of presence. That is the presence of Christ himself, which then will beg you the question of, That's all through revelation. Well, what is this presence of Christ? Who is it that is in our midst? We'll get to that in a minute. But to just understand and appreciate how important this description is, if you were to go back to the first of Revelations, you would see that it's how it begins the whole book to all the ritters to all the churches. Then I turned to see whose voice it was that spoke to me, and on turning, here is the descriptor. I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands I saw one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe with a golden sash across his chest. The descriptor will go on, and we'll go back to it a little bit later, but this glorious vision of Christ, who sits at the right hand of God, that is, who has all authority over the cosmos, is the one speaking To the church, the one that here is described as in the midst of the church, wherein this great light has a power attached to it that is unimaginable. If we think about the power that is not like powers of this world, a power that is ascended into heaven, seated at the right hand of God, emanating this glorious light of power and presence. Now, where does all this come from? Well, anyone reading this who had any lineage with Judaism would understand exactly what this is. We're taken back to the very beginning of salvation. Where it is that that, that, that Adam, the first church, if you will, and Eve are described as imaging God. We're already given this sort of light metaphor, this Imaging God on earth. And we fast forward through the Exodus and the, the foundation or the beginning of the temple. And when the temple is being built for the first time, listen to the way that the instructions go in Exodus 25, 31. And you shall make a lampstand of pure gold. And you shall make the seven lamps for it. And the lamp shall be set up as to give light. On the space in front of it. What's going on here? What's particularly interesting here is, is the location of this lamp. For it is right there in what's called the holy place of the temple. It's not outside. It's inside, rising up over the temple walls, if you will. And here we are described that it's right in front of the mercy seat. You know what the mercy seat is? It's that Place where the animal sacrifice would have been made for an atonement of sin, for the forgiveness of sins. And right there on the left or on the north side, there would have been a table with bread. It was known as the show bread or more more significantly, the bread of life. That God and what's happening in this temple is the substance of, of what life needs and right to the south side on the left on the right side was this great lampstand the bread of life this great lamp with seven arms on it seven lamps on the single lampstand if you're envisioning this these golden lampstand pure gold and here you have these great lights. And there's explicit instructions given as to make sure, and here's the key if you're listening, if you're listening with ears, listen as you remember the reading, that this lamp can never go out. Explicit instructions are given to the Levites, how they are to, to consistently, I mean, it's one of the main jobs, if, if I were a pastor in this day, you know, a lot of people ask me, Pastor, what do you guys do during the week? I mean, I know y'all have a big day on Sunday, but, well, you know, what, what 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 do you do? Just pray all the time? Well, back in that day, I would have said, well, I'd say about half my week is making oil. I make oil. I take the, the skins, and I take the fat of the animals, and I, I make oil. Really? Oh, yeah, because that lamp, man, we got to keep it shining. That's That's the beacon. That's That's the very epicenter purpose of everything that happens in our whole religion. That it's drawing the nations to to discern from afar. Fast forward when this temple finally moves from tabernacle to temple to now the temple in Jerusalem. This lamp was so great and huge you could see it for miles and miles away on the Mount of Jerusalem. It was a significant. Identity marker of what Israel is all about. The prophets, of course, will take hold of this theme, and you will see, like we read today in Isaiah 60, prophet after prophet after prophet reminding Israel, You are the light unto the nations. And by you, he means the church of God in the Old Testament, the people of God whose identity focuses on a temple and a mercy seat and the forgiveness of sins and a drawing the nations in to be restored to themselves as the image of God who would therefore take upon themselves this very lightness quality that is the very purpose of their existence. Ezekiel would say it like this, Do not think that I saved you for your own sake, Israel. Oops. He would say, no, you are being saved for my sake, that the nations might know. There's that witness, that I am the Lord, your God. It's an incredible vision. And this is all packed beautifully into this passage in Revelations. And so here we have this this bread of life. And I'm asking you this, where then is the temple in the new covenant? Well, of course, some of you, if you've been around Christianity a little bit, are starting to hear some themes that become quite resonant and quite often in the Gospels. Jesus would come onto the scene. He would go into a temple and he would say, literally, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall no longer hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Remember, he says, you know, thy kingdom, you know, this, this bread, that we're to pray for speaking not of our daily bread being this this he's talking there in the lord's prayer this this bread of all breads the most important bread give us this day our daily bread that is not oh lord give me my porridge that is give us the messiah jesus the christ who is going to be the very human manifestation of the temple, the lampstand. He would say as well, in chapter 8 of John, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have a great life of light. John 8. Now remember, John, the writer of the gospel of John, is writing Revelations. And he's writing this, using themes that he had specifically used and utilized throughout his gospel. A very temple-focused understanding of the gospel. And so it's not an accident here. But then it begs the question, For Jesus said in chapter 9 of John, according to John's gospel, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Oops, he's not in the world anymore, is he? Now, if you know John's gospel, you understand that he just set you up. Because you see, half of the gospel of John wants to talk about not the death of Christ, though it's very prominent in the first half, not even the resurrection of Christ, though it's certainly important. But half of the gospel of John is going to focus on the ascension of Christ. I know the church has this little amnesia about ascension. We we just kind of skip from resurrection to parousia or the coming second coming of christ oops there's this huge history of salvation event it is a salvific event the ascension don't forget that there's a salvation that is coming to us through this historical event no less so than the resurrection the incarnation or the death or even the coming again it is one of the great i'm convinced it's one of the greatest errors of modern Christianity, that we have lost the ascension in our vernacular, in our sort of liturgical even vernacular. But that's what John's gospel is all about. And that's what you have to understand as we look at this description of the church, now described as a place of dwelling or presence of Christ as a great lampstand. And you see, this picks up with what John said in his gospel. Jesus would sit the disciples together when he told him he was going to have to die, but he would be raised up. And then he began to explain to him why he had to do that. And he explained that it was because he said this, Truly I tell you, the one who believes in me will also do the works that I do. That's why I'm going, because you are going to do the works that I do as now this temple presence. In fact, he says, you will do greater works than these. Why? Here's the ground clause if you're a grammarian, you know, syntax guy. Ground clause, why? Because I am ascending. I'm going to the Father. I will not leave you, he says, as orphans when I go to the Father. He goes on to explain that I'm going to come to you when I go to the Father. And he goes, yeah, it's true. Some people won't see it. Some people won't see me. They won't discern me coming to you. But you will. What's he talking about? He then starts talking about the Holy Spirit. How he's going to give this one who would in fact mediate him, Christ, in our midst. But the beauty of this new system of ascension ministry is that now the greater things is such that where is the temple of God? It used to be in the first century wherever Jesus' feet are hitting the ground walking. The temple of God is in every place that gathers in the presence of this Holy Spirit to become a lampstand among the nations. This is the theology. Fast forward. John will conclude his gospel before he then suffers persecution, is banished over to uh, Patmos and writes this incredible ending uh, gospel-focused Uh, Revelation book, he tells us about the last meeting with Christ and his disciples, and it picks up in chapter 20, and he said, and this is, and it starts with, of course, and some of you are familiar, this is, this painting has been dedicated to this very moment, I am ascending. And he says this to Mary, who is grieving his loss outside of the temple, when he appears to her, and she discovers he is literally the resurrected Christ, the Jesus Himself, she just in total ecstasy runs to Him and starts clinging to Him, and you can just see this this environment. You know, she just she's not going to let go of Him this time. I let Him go once; I am not letting Him go again. And she's just clinging to Him, and Jesus rebukes her and says, "Quit clinging to Me, for I am ascending." In other words, there is something greater yet to come than even My resurrection. I want you to stop and just take a breath for a minute. Take that in. Do you believe that? Is there something likened unto the resurrection that's even greater? A kind of power that can manifest greater works even than Christ and his incarnational ministry did? Now, don't understand that to mean it's our works, not Christ. It's greater works of Christ that will be accomplished by him. Why? Because Jesus here is envisioning in, in moments, well, actually, after a couple of, of, about a 40 days, that 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 he will ascend. He will be given this incredible platform of authority seated at the right hand of the Father, which is the place of authority, the right hand. He will have now resurrection power. His body will be now a glorified body. And he's envisioning it a day when He will reign with great power and authority through this temple that is now located all over the world in many and various forms that are localized into the presence of a particular neighborhood or city. The incarnation becomes the church of Christ, the body of Christ. The power of Christ that is now the power of the lampstand. The power of the temple to forgive. And you're thinking, gosh, you're reading a lot into that little passage. Yep, yep, I am. Until you you go on to two more verses. Just two more verses. And let me read it to you. And so she runs off. She gets together the disciples, brings them together. Jesus comes up to them. And it says this. Now on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews... Now, now how does this description sound about the apostles? They're scared. They're scared. They're sitting here. They're fearful. They're timid. Remember, these are the same people that denied Christ when he was on the cross and were not loyal to him and all abandoned him. And they're hovering in a closed room, fearful. And then here's what happens. He comes in, and you can see it now, the priestly Christ of now, the resurrection, and he Raises his hands as a Levitical priest would have done. And I know this because of the words that he uses. And he says, peace be with you. This is one of those chill moments. I mean, this is like a chill moment galore. I mean, this, they're going like, oh, I don't, I, they were probably more afraid than they were before. Like something's really not right with our cosmos right now. The world just got turned upside down. Peace be with you. And when he had said this, we're told, he showed them his hands and his side. See, it's really me. I'm the one. It was on that cross. It was dead for three days. And the disciples were glad when they saw that he was the Lord. And then Jesus said to them, well, it's like, don't be too glad. Well, yeah, no, that's not true. He probably does want to be glad. But, but listen to what he says here. Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, how? We've already learned, as temple, as the lamp unto the nations, even so I am sending you now. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Everything you've been talking about in chapter 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, and all the way through to here. Receive now this Holy Spirit. And listen to what he says, and it's unequivocal. And if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. And if you withhold forgiveness from any, it will be withhold. And right here, we start equivocating. Oh, he didn't mean that. Oh, the church really doesn't have that kind of power. That's just like crazy power. He means it. He means it. No, not necessarily. The church is not perfect. No, not necessarily immediately. It's not a magic show. But there is given to the church the greatest power in all of the world. A power that ends all wars. A power that ends all suffering. The power that ends everything that we are dutifully busy about trying to abate. To and can't seem to get ahead of it. I don't care how many fights, how many hunger campaigns, how many medicines are are discovered. We can't get ahead of this curveball. We haven't in over 6,000 plus years, depending on how old you think all this is. I just gave you the narrow version. What makes us think that we have this power? There is a power that comes not from this earth, but from heaven. Forgive sins. Restore humanity to God, the life source the abundance of Eden itself, the image of God restored. Now, that's part one of John's letter to the Ephesus. Every bit of that, I can almost assure you, they knew exactly what got packed in. What I just unpacked for you for these last 10 minutes or so, it would have come running through that that little hole of, of, of the mouth of the angel, if you will. They understood, this is who you're supposed to be. Here's who you are. Do you, do you understand that? And for a moment there, you're thinking, okay, it seems like they might understand it. Because then in the second part, verses 2 through 3, he begins to reflect upon many good things. He says, I see from heaven. Now, he's in heaven. I see down here your, your works, Ephesus and how you toil, and how you are enduring. Okay, back to you who are just exhausted right now. It's as if he could say, I got it, man. You've been working your little, you know, back ends off. Okay, I got it. You have really been pushing it. And he's really patting you on the back. This is not just, you know, any bad thing. I mean, yeah, I get it. And I'm, I'm seeing it. Good job. Good job, Ephesus. I see your works and the toil and your endurance and that you are not able to bear evil and you have tested those who call themselves apostles but are not and find themselves to be false. Not only do I see these good works, what are good works? Love, loving one another. I see that. Good job. I see the way that you're pursuing truth and orthodoxy, how you desire to go back to the the true apostles. To get your understanding of what the truth of the gospel and the truth of God is. I mean, this is a code phrase. If you've been reading, even in our series through First Timothy, you know this is a huge contrast the false apostles over against the true apostles that witnessed Christ's resurrection, etc. And he says, "I've been seeing you do that. You're like the Bereans in so many words. You've been you've been studying the teachings of the apostles, and you've been ruling out those things that are not by good and necessary reference from those apostles." And he particularly mentions the, the Nicolaitans here. The Nicolaitans was a kind of a of a a, a a bad sort of temple movement within even Judaism, where it was a kind of worldliness. There was a sexual Immorality that was attached to their spirituality, even. And there were other materialistic sorts of things, kind of a health wealth sort of idea that was attached to them. And he says, you've even rejected these guys. So he's saying, good job. I commend you. All good stuff. Oh, and you are oh, whew, whew, Got through that one pretty good. You know? But then he comes this Incredibly jolting warning. He says, but I have this against you. That you have left your first or formal love. Now, that is not a particularly good translation. That's actually the RSV. The better translation is the one you heard today. In the ESV, it gets right to the wooden structure of of, of of the sentence in the Greek. Let me read to you in another way. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. The love. Now that moves it away from the subjective. The first, your temptation would have been to say, oh, this is about Christians who forget Jesus Christ, their, their, their first love. A kind of eros love that we so naturally import into, import into the word today. And it's a, it's a good use. I do think there's an eros love with respect to us in Christ. I really do. If you've been through the Philippians series that I did a while back, we really talked a lot about that. There is an Eros passionate love, a a romantic love, if you will, that's true, that that where Jesus is my first love, okay? I do believe that's important. But that's not, I don't think, what he's talking about here. The way he objectifies love here is very important. Because what he's talking about is is this, this love that's not a subjective kind of a love, but this covenant love, this agape love, that you first, was, was really the, 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 the description of you as a church that got planted, you could say, in the days of Paul. It was, it was that founding love, that passion, for what? For what then? What had they lost? Well, it's tied to the description of the church. You're in jeopardy of losing your lamp. What was that? This great witness power, wherein the purpose of the church, its passion, its first love, if you will, was to see the nations gathered and saved by the very present power of the ascended Lord. It's this evangelistic. Uh, uh, but I, yeah, the word sounds like proselytizing, and I don't think it has to look like that. So I hate to use the word, but some of you know that word. But it's this passion for witness, this passion for our purpose to be a lampstand, a beacon in the city, wherein the people of God are brought in and their sins are forgiven. That power that would, that John left us with. And there's so much that I could share with you that would, I think, prove that. Just for the sake of not getting too tedious, I'm not going to get into all the scriptures here that cover about three of my pages. But basically, it's going to go and look at what what are the other times when the Gospels use this word first. And it's amazing how many times when this first language is used, it's used in a sense of priority. Strive first for the kingdom of God. And his righteousness and all these other things will be given to you. First Corinthians 15 will talk about this as well. How he, he says, Dean, I need to remind you, brothers and sisters, of the good news that you have at your disposal. Do I need to remind you of this good news? We know what the good news is, right? He's talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ unto the nations. And then he goes on in, in verse 3 in, in, in Corinthians. He says, for I hand it on to you as of first importance. That's the sense in which John is talking here, of first importance. And then he goes and describes that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. What's he describing in theological terms? He's describing the mercy seat. What happens at the mercy seat is death for an atonement of sin. And that he was buried and that he was raised, and on the third day, in accordance to the Scriptures, he ascended into heaven. And he's saying, you've lost He's trying to remind you of this first priority of yours. And then when you look at the word love, it's interesting, this first love kind of a thing, clearly, again, reflecting this passion to be a witness to the world. Matthew 24, 12, and he says, And because of the increase of loveless, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And the good news, what's the love about? The good news of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. What was the love that he's describing here? That first priority love, it's the love and the passion to see the kingdom of God come into the midst of the nations, and the nations to be saved and restored. If you remember, some of you know, if you're familiar with the stories of the gospel, how, how Jesus, when he went into the temple, you remember what he did first? He went in this place called the Court of the Gentiles. It was specifically a geographical space that was built into the temple for the nations to come. It's kind of like a space like this. You're the Court of the Gentiles. This would have been the Holy of Holies. No, you weren't supposed to come here until. You weren't admitted to the table until there was a genuine conversion. In the Old Testament, no less than the New Testament. But there was a place where people were to be brought, where they would hear and see and sniff and smell the smoke. They would see the light. They would be told about the bread of presence. And when they were told of this great light, and, or see this great light and told of this bread of presence, all of which was directing them to this mercy seat of God, they would discover a power there. And a power unto salvation. That's what's being talked about here. This love. Again, I'm pushing through here. So notice then the challenge in verse five in our passage. He says, "If not, if you don't, if you don't repent and return to your first love, your, the very purpose of your existence, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place if you don't repent." Now, what is he saying? He's not saying, once saved, not always saved. He's not saying, I don't think here, that you're going to cease to be justified. He's going to say that you're going to lose your power. You're going to lose the land. You're, you may individually squeak into heaven, but you're going to waste a lot of your life. Working power that can't save. Dutifully doing that, but doing it unto yourself in a way that doesn't meet the criteria of the temple. Remember Ezekiel? Don't think that I saved you for your sake ultimately. See, why? That's not a mean thing to say. He's saying, he would have said that to the very people who invited you to church one day. He's saying, I, I saved you for the sake of your mom and your dad and your brother and your sister. Just as I saved them for your sake. So ultimately it's for everybody's sake that he saves us. But he's trying to get this sense of our posture, our relationship to the saving activity of God. But I saved them for my sake, for my glory's sake. That my glory might be discerned and known. And listen, when you discern the glory of God unto salvation, you're saved. So it all comes with that. To glorify God and to experience that glory of God is to be saved by God. Don't ever think of holiness, glory, as somehow not salvation. Salvation, holiness, is how we discern the holiness of God. Through his redemptive works of holiness. And so we have this incredible thing. So let me, let me kind of draw it to a close here. This Ephesus church, you could say, was at risk of losing its missional power. That is to say that they could be faithful but lose the power of faith. They could be dutifully working and doing the works but lose the very power of conversion work and transformational work. They could love but lose the very powerful Power of that love. All when they lose their identity. And more importantly, they lose this beautific, glorious vision of the Christ they serve. You see, this is exactly what Paul is going to write Ephesus. Somehow, this is a big deal for Ephesus. For in chapter 1, when Paul writes to the Ephesians, he says to them, Man, I observe, I'm I'm thankful for all these manifestations of salvation that's in your life. He walks through all the uh, uh, incarnational ministries of Christ and all the things that he did on the cross and how these people are experiencing that. And he's thanking God. He, He Then he says, And for this reason, I continue to pray for you. Oh, you mean there's more? Yeah. And you remember his prayer? I'm praying for you that you would understand what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might. That he might, and here in Christ, when he raised him from the dead, past tense, and seated him at the right hand of the Father, that is the presence. That you would then discern, he says, how it is that your Christ is far above. Let these words come into your ear like you've never heard them before if you've heard them before far above this power. Far above what power do you dote on, Christian? What other power is it above that is in your life? Is it education power? Is it financial power? Is it military power? Is it political power? Is it relational power? Is it networking power? Is it prestige power? Man, we are working it. And Here it is, that we would discern this incredible, immeasurable greatness of power that is far above all rule and authority and a power and dominion and above every name that is named that's made powerfully, you could say, and only in this age, but also in the one to come. For he put all things under the power, the feet of this scented Lord. And I'm going to ask you this question as we think about taking this home. Where is your power? And do you believe it anymore? Well, a good test would be your prayers. I love this quote by a friend, John Smed. Some of you know John. He was a church planter and in, in, uh, two church plants in, in uh, Canada. Uh, he was the uh, a guy that was incredibly encouraging to me when we were planting this church. Uh, we were planting churches mostly in and around Christendom at the time. And he was one of the few guys that I could talk to that had planted a church outside of Christendom. And Had different metrics for evaluating things. And he was at the time the uh, coordinator of church planning uh, for our denomination. Now he's a friend. He's doing a prayer uh, ministry. But he writes this about prayer. And it's true that prayer and the way you pray pray is probably a significant test. First of all, do you pray? If you don't, that tells you a lot about your theology of ascension. It tells you a lot right there. I mean, I'm so convicted. Let me just tell you right now, I'm so convicted of this. I told John when I was sitting with him at Genoa, saying, man, I'm just so convicted by the stuff you're writing right now. Because, you know, it just really exposes to me. A guy that's leading a ministry and a movement even around ascension, that I don't really bring ascension home into my existential being. Because if I did, the most powerful thing I could do is pray. Pray down the power of God on earth. Here's the way he says it, and you've heard it later in the meditation. Christian prayer is radically distinct from all other prayer. When a Christian prays, he has an exalted king ever in his mind. Christian prayer rejoices in Christ's resurrection and participates in Christ's authority over heaven and earth. Sometimes we forget to whom we are praying. You attend prayer meetings or listen to Sunday morning prayers... And you might imagine Jesus as a heavenly housekeeper cleaning up mankind's problems. Or keeping the world tidy and running smoothly. This kind of prayer flows from the mind of a man and not from the throne of Christ. Domesticated prayers for the status quo betray emaciated views of Jesus and his coming kingdom. We miss out on the power of the triumphant ascension. As we pray, we are supernaturally united to him. Do we believe that? And seated with him in heavenly places. Do we believe that? That's what it says in Ephesians 2, that you are seated with Christ in your prayers. The power of God is coming into this world. Once we recall that we are united to him in the present power and glory, we become what we pray. And so as I think about this passage and how to help bring it home, I want you to think about your prayers. Are your prayers praying that God would just sustain the status quo in your life, the things that you like, to tidy up the messy spots? Are your prayers merely for comfort, for peace? I mean, there is a peace that we're praying for, to be sure. It's interesting, even in our confession, it describes that the purpose of even our government, which we celebrate this week, and we should celebrate nations. Nations are the very common grace of God. We should pray for the nations, and for all those who serve common grace. Our teachers, our warriors, our our politicians. Yes, we should pray for them, and and, and love them, and appreciate them, who are in this public service event of, of restraining evil, if you will. But it's interesting... The church for 2,000 years believed that the purpose of even the nations was subordinate to the purpose of God. It, It was as if restraining evil so that the real power can take root. It was the hand of God, by the way, restraining evil, so you don't divorce God from the nations. But restraining evil that there might be the context, the soil, the fertility, wherein the gospel could be proclaimed by the church. We've kind of lost that in our separation stuff. It's right there in our confession. It came over from from England uh, in in 17 over whatever it was. was, And and, um, it's very important. 1647 actually is when it came over. the, The confession. Do you pray tidy prayers? Do you pray peace, peace prayers? Which we should in some ways. Or do you pray for the unleashing of the kingdom of God in this city and in your lives. Do you pray for your children and your parents and for your brothers and sisters to be radically converted from worldliness and from worldly desires? Are we? Do we believe that what we did this week, all wonderful and good things but yet unfinished until we hear the stories of conversion. Do we believe that his power is here enough to say, to to call the question, to seal the deal? We're sharing a little Bible study with a Christian kid. We're sharing a Sunday school class. But to go to that next step, believing that God is powerful unto salvation, and say to the child, to say to your friend, to say whoever you're talking to, have you considered giving your life to Jesus Christ? Are you afraid to ask that because you really don't believe, we, I should say, we really don't believe in the power that is at work in this world by the ascended Lord? I think we might share a little in common with the Ephesus church. This is, a, is this a good church? Are we good Christians? Yes, we're good in Christ unto justification by grace through faith alone. Yes, I think we're doing some good things and to be encouraged by those good things. But are we believing really by the way we pray, by the way we boldly become witnesses to our friends and neighbors? Are we hiding behind this veneer of, oh, I don't want to wear it on my shoulder. I don't want to... Ent- I don't You know, you just... Can we believe that God might actually be working in this person's life in ways you can't imagine? And to go ahead and risk your prestige and say, you know, I'm a Christian. Can can I tell you my story? I mean, I love the fact that we just can tell our story. That's what it means to be a witness. Tell the word your story. Looking for the opportunities to do it. You may just be surprised how powerful your story is. But make sure your story is ultimately not about you. But about Jesus Christ and the grace of the gospel. For you, church CPC, are a lampstand first. That is your first purpose in your life. You are situated right in front of the mercy seat. Around the bread of life. Offered to this city right here. Where is our city? Where are they? We're going to be launching some ambitious prayers this fall. We're going to be shifting our, our services around this fall. And we're going to start praying for people to become born again. Again. And we're going to pray for life-changing power. And if that scares you, well, it ought to scare you. It ought to scare because it's powerful, but it's good. And there'll be more joy than you've ever imagined. Amen.